Welcome to the podcast, and thank you for listening. Today, we're going to talk about James Cameron's Avatar. The plot of the movie is essentially just a very basic white savior narrative, where it's very clear capitalism bad, colonialism bad, and the Na'vi, who are the native people to the planet, need a white savior to come in and tell them how to fight and how to resist. So people have, of course, torn this movie apart. Not only is it a white savior narrative, but it has it perpetuates a lot of indigenous stereotypes. The Navi are undeniably a representation of what James Cameron thinks native culture is. Um, he said in 2012, the European destruction of native peoples using military force in order to acquire their land and resources is obviously the basis for the Avatar story. And you might be like, oh, what's the big deal with that? Well, uh, there are a lot of problems in Avatar about stereotypes. There is the portrayal of a, some sort of of this vague, appropriative, monolithic, indigenous culture. Lots and lots of people have talked about that. But uh, I want to talk about some slightly different things today. I'm hopefully not going to spend most of my time focused on Avatar, actually. I'm hoping that I can use Avatar as a gateway to introduce some concepts to you that might be a little bit more unfamiliar. I'm going to preface this whole next section by saying I am not native. I've been very lucky uh, to take this really excellent course on native nations and nation building, and um, this is why this podcast episode exists. I'm using sources from that class, quotes from guests in that class, concepts from that class, etc., but I am not native. In, in Avatar, the Navi exist entirely in communication with their planet Ewa, who is not just a planet, but like a living organism that connects all things. Um, on Ewa, there is none of the reality of actually living in an ecosystem, none of the ugly reality of biology or ecology. It's just perfect harmony. Um, but the point of Pandora and Avatar is not to be realistic. Of course, of course not. With the setup of the Avatar program and everything, it's, it's supposed to be an escapist fantasy. You're supposed to imagine yourself on this pristine, untouched planet. Um, and that is very problematic when you consider that this is also meant to be an allegory for indigenous people. So this idea of this untouched, pristine indigenous people where modern versions are not this and don't count as indigenous... Uh, is very deeply rooted in colonialism and racism that began during the early colonization of the Americas. It This idea has been challenged many times by Native authors and activists because it, it, it strips the agency of Native people. Um, for example, in the title chaptered, in the chapter titled <laughs> Land and Layering of her as of yet unreleased book, Professor Jean Dennison at the University of Washington, she's an Osage scholar, she says, um, Such a move maps neatly onto the older tropes of the ecological Indian, which have been long critiqued for their positioning of indigenous people as part of nature, rather than deserving of full rights, especially over lands. Uh, this is critiquing the land back movement, where the assumption is, of course, that if you give the land back to the indigenous people, they will have some sort of ecological stewardship over it that is in a very eco sense as opposed to acknowledging that a lot of indigenous people rely on extractive energy for example the osage she says further on in the book or in the same chapter uh the romantic images of the indigenous in the past are again positioned as the only real indians challenging these structures of oppression require work on many different levels this is what the challenge of avatar is is because it is positioning the navi as this 
uh, this romantic image of the indigenous in the past, or the romantic image of indigenous people as part of nature. That is kind of one of the challenging stereotypes that Avatar unfortunately perpetuates. Um, let's talk about this a little more. Wesley Leonard, who is a Miamia and an assistant professor at UCAL Riverside, has written extensively about the process of revitalizing the Miami, the Miami language. Miami at the Wengi was dormant, not dead, dormant for 30 years, um, but academics considered it a dead language. Professor Leonard challenges this in his 2011 paper called, um, appropriately, Challenging Extinction Through Modern Miami Language Practices. The summary of the paper is that, in short, the idea of a dead language assumes that only the valid mode of language is transmission is through teaching children in the house and having native speakers that learn from childhood. However, hundreds of Miami people speak Miami at the Wengi with different levels of fluency, but they use it day to day and they use it within their households, which challenges the idea of it being dead. In fact, it challenges the academic definitions of what a dead language is. But he also brings up an excellent way to continue this discussion, um, where he says, This set of general assumptions, which I will refer to as the dominant discourse, starts with impositions of purism on the language structure and usage patterns of the American indigenous language in question, in this case, of Miamia. They include the related fact that the speakers must be pure in their cultural identities and associated life practices, thus disallowing influence from other cultural groups or linguistic communities to which the members of the group may belong. So the Navi don't incorporate other aspects of other cultures. They don't incorporate anything to do with the humans besides weaponry. When Jake comes in and says, you need to fight back. Um, no duh. Um, <laughs> and I know some person in the comments who is a big avatar head is going to be like, well, what about the language school? And besides the fact that the language school is pretty much only in the narrative to explain why a bunch of the characters speak English instead of having them speak the Navi language the whole time, there is also something that could be said there about incorporating a colonist-run school into a narrative about um, Native American standards. So Leonard says in a later article, such thinking partly reflects the more general misconception that American and Indian cultures and languages are suitable only for old primitive practices. So basically he's saying this thinking is a result of the idea that American Indi Indian cultures are stuck in the past and that they must be stuck in the past. And if they're not, then they're not indigenous. Earlier, I talked about another chapter from uh, Professor Dennison's book, and I'm going to bring it up again because it was a very good book and um, you all should read it when it gets published next year. So her book is chronicling the building of the Osage government, the constitution, and the efforts to reclaim sovereignty in the face of the illegal overthrow of their original constitution. Uh, so highlighted throughout the book is the concept of moving to a new country. This idea has allowed the Osage people to continue to survive as a cultural group and a political nation. So let's talk about it. What is moving to a new country? In the chapter, Moving to a New Nation, Professor Dennison, who in this particular chapter is also writing with Meredith Drent, who is a Supreme Court judge for the Osage Nation and also a justice on the Tulalip Court, says, For many Native peoples, it is the values that are most important and feasible to bring forward. Building on this discussion, moving positions, living values as goals we are constantly working towards, rather than anything static, universal, or located most purely in the past. Moving to a new country, therefore, is about change, adapting, surviving, 
at still maintaining core values, but not getting stuck in the past. And Native nations have adapted and survived and navigate the challenges of colonialism in many ways. The representation of Native nations, as we can see in Avatar, is of static and historical, fundamentally unchanged artifacts. And look, really quickly, <laughs> like we could talk about anything like this really quickly, let's take a quick side tour to talk about the colonialism in Avatar. So Avatar's colonialism is, of course, the evil corporation and evil colonel dude who, <laughs> yeah, he's evil. He's a he's a he's an old military guy. Um, but it's also it's it's representative of this idea of colonialism as a force. Professor Dennison, again, in her introduction to the book, says colonialism, while never an agent in and of itself, does usefully name a broad spectrum of agents and actions. It takes the form of teachers who limited the use of the Osage language, federal agent to overthrow our government, U.S. Congress people who insisted on operating but not adequately funding the Indian Health Service, and settlers who stole our land. It's not just the evil, violent colonel and the extractive resources. The reality is that colonialism is a lot more layered than that. And resistance to colonialism isn't just the violent resistance that the white savior narrative requires. Native people have and continue to resist in many ways, uh, from historical diplomacy, to retaining culture in the face of attempts to wipe it out, to reclaiming languages that were once considered, again, air quotes, dead, to using, in fact, the biases and mindsets of colonial actors in order to get what indigenous people needed to survive. Again, you can absolutely see the Osage nation as a very good example of that. But Avatar limits the Navi people and culture to the resistance to colonialism. That's all they are. Like I said earlier, they don't have a culture outside of connection to their planet and not liking humans because the movie is not about the Navi. Again, Professor Dennison says, in regards to how focusing on colonialism limits native people to the past, she says, there is a danger in focusing too much of our attention on the power of colonialism as doing so often works to downplay the agency of indigenous peoples. Such moves further empower colonialism, leaving few openings for indigenous features. In fact, the whole book deftly illustrates how much the Osage nation has adapted in order to remain Osage. In her chapter, Language and Respect, Professor Dennison talks about the process of creating the orthography for the Osage language. Creating the orthography was a very important step to allow Osage to be taught in schools, to be used in casual daily life, to be used in internet messaging, which we all know at this point is very important. The colonial challenges of doing this were the same as what Leonard experienced when he was talking about revitalizing the Miami language. However, they found that the longer the language program continued, the more attitudes within the community changed as they realized what doing this meant for their culture, for their language. This is uh, from the same chapter. She's interviewing an employee at the language center. I asked him about what he meant by creating a modern Osage language. He pointed up to the felt banner on his wall containing the mission statement for the language, which read, Our mission is to revitalize the Osage language to its purest form and to teach our people to speak Osage within the realm of our unique ways and in daily conversation. Our endeavors will be unwavering. Our future depends on it. He and others in the department had been discussing how the mission statement needed to be updated. He explained that the longer he worked with the language, the more he realized it was alive. There was no moment in history in which there was a pure language, only constant change. 
This doesn't just apply to language, of course. It applies to any culture. And of course, indigenous cultures are no different. It's just how we treat. So what do we do with all of this information I just thrown at you? Well, of course, I would like to recommend to you that you go watch and read some movies and books read, written by native authors and uh, native directors. For example, I watched Prey last month, which I really liked. I would generally recommend it. However, it is part of the Predator franchise. It is pretty gory. If you don't like gore, don't watch it. If you're like, what other movies are there besides Prey, I will actually put a whole list of them in the description. I'll also put the sources I used today and some recommended readings that you guys might enjoy if you were interested in this topic. And lastly, I would really like to recommend you watch Addressing Historical Trauma, which is a 2018 talk by Karina Walters, uh, who's a Choctaw Nation member and a professor at University of Washington. You can find it on YouTube. It's about 20 minutes. It's very good. Um, I really like the way that she talks about historical trauma and healing from it, and it's very useful for understanding how to move forward and moving on and understanding what historical trauma is in the first place. What Professor Walters is saying is that things that have may have worked for us in the past, in this case, uh, for, for the nation she was working with, it was strategies for navigating colonialism and making sure your children survived. They may have worked in the past, but they don't, they don't work anymore. They hurt us now. I think that, that that applies to our understandings, and it applies to how we represent Native people in our work. These stereotypical representations that may have worked. It may have been progressive in 2009 when Avatar was released. I mean, I'm sure that I read people's reactions at the time. They thought it was very progressive. It was racist to not like Avatar. Um, but we've, we've moved past that. We've moved past colonialism-centered, antiquated, monolithic representation that ultimately strips Native people of their agency and moves us backwards. Uh, now, now is the time for us to move forward. I appreciate you listening and taking the time to hear me out today. I hope you have a great day.